Many thanks for the privilege of your company here on Search for Truth, your Bible teaching program with Brian Johnston. We've reached talk number nine in this 11-week series, which is all about our Christian identity. Brian's been looking at how the Bible describes us and we've seen how we're eternally loved, fully forgiven and wonderfully made, as well as many more wonderful statements about a Christian's existence um, and identity. At this time, Brian's talk has the title, A Spirit of Nationalism. So let's go to Brian now, who will explain. Thanks, John. We've been thinking until now about issues of personal identity and how we might refer to ourselves. For example, a successful businessman may be somewhat irked to be referred to as such a buddy's husband, unless his wife is very famous, that is. I can remember very well the occasion when an independently-minded female greeted me on an international conference visit where I'd been invited to address certain issues as a guest speaker. She greeted me with a twinkle in her eye by referring to me as my wife's husband, using, of course, my wife's name. I realised immediately where she was coming from and affirmed this identification, I hope, with sufficient enthusiasm. But I now want to turn our attention to broader issues as we move in thought beyond the personal to concerns of national identity. This is serious business, since such matters are the cause of many tensions, disputes and wars. The current United States President, Donald Trump, made political capital during his election campaign by tapping into the vexed issue of border control with Mexico and the flow of illegal immigrants. The anti-immigrants movement, the war on drugs and the war on terrorism have fueled the anti-Mexican and anti-Latino sentiment beyond measure in the United States. Law professor David Cole reports the war on drugs has largely been a war on minorities. It is, after all, drug enforcement that motivates most racial profiling. Similarly, like the war on drugs, according to the American Civil Liberties Union, the war on terror has quickly turned into a war on immigrants. In the late 20th century, Harvard's leading political scientist, Samuel Huntington, joined the anti-Mexican immigration propaganda by passionately commenting about the growing Latino population. Then in the 21st century, Professor Huntington, who taught at Harvard University for more than a half century, went on to state that the single and most immediate and most serious challenge to America's traditional identity came from the immense and continuing immigration from Latin America, especially from Mexico. Whereas in the US today, the largest immigrant group is in fact made up of Asians. The largest minority group comprises Latinos, and the largest ethnic minority group is that of the Mexicans. Which brings us back to Trump. He successfully fired people's imagination by talking up the idea of building a Mexican border wall. It didn't matter how realistic or otherwise this was. He tapped into a populist vein and used it to ride a wave of support. This captures the idea of how we humans seem to be very skilled at building walls of one sort or another, often in the narrowed interest of nationalistic views. The Bible documents the rise and fall of many walls, and they're not all man-made as we see when we work our way through from beginning to end. So it's not always a bad thing to preserve what's inside from what's outside. 
Between the Bible's covers, it seems we travel from the defended perimeter of the Garden of God in Genesis to the jasper-walled city of God in the book of Revelation. Mentioning walls, there's also Hadrian's Wall running between Scotland and England in the United Kingdom. We won't find it in the Bible, of course, but it was the ancient dividing line left by the Romans to monitor the two-way traffic at the border of the Roman Empire and gain current information about tribes to the north, and it's been a potent symbol ever since. In 2014, 55% of Scottish voters voted against independence from political rule headquartered in Westminster, England. They later voted overwhelmingly to remain in the European Union. Again, that was a vote against independence. They didn't get that wish on the 23rd of June 2016 because a majority of voters in the United Kingdom voted in favour of taking their country out of the European Union. A few years before that, the census of 2011 was the first survey to ask people to tick boxes for their national identity. The result was that 60% of people in England described themselves as English only, with ethnic minorities tending to prefer to identify as British. I was raised on the north side of the border that divides Scotland and England and sensed the struggle people had to break free from Big Brother or England. Sometimes the underdog is the most tenacious, the most passionate. And this may help explain why, whereas the Scots have tended to be quite fiercely patriotic, the English are seemingly less so. In fact, someone has suggested that the English need to reinvent an identity better than the cliché-ridden hulk which the retreating tide of imperialism has left them. Perhaps the increasing celebration of St George's Day is a possible response to that. But let's return to a more basic question. What is nationalism? Inevitably, it's about values, history and culture. Can we imagine people on the so-called liberal left in England being prepared to let their country be defined as the country of kings and queens, of Victorian values and the Anglican Church, of Margaret Thatcher and Downtown Abbey, to mention a highly popular TV series in that country which depicts the life of the landed gentry? Those whose political views might be described as left of centre would generally not identify with these values at all. What we are illustrating is that values and beliefs, as well as history and culture, are all the stuff that a nation's identity gets rooted in. If that is so, it seems highly relevant to ask, what are the core values of the holy nation? We need to define what we mean by the holy nation. But first it's worth pausing to note that anthropologists, those who study different people groups, have long believed that we can learn about the values and morals of any people group, including ancient civilizations long gone, by carefully studying their rituals. Let's now return to the question as to what is a holy nation. It's a biblical idea, the first ever mention of which takes us back to the occasion of the giving of the Ten Commandments amid the volcanic eruptions of Mount Sinai. The nation in question back then was the people descended from Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, known thereafter as Israelites. They were called to reflect the holiness of the God who identified them there as being his people. Suppose we were to begin by exploring their rituals. They'd a God-given law 
with many ceremonies expressed through a sacrificial system. In it there were liquid, grain and meat offerings, where the meat came from animal victims. Among sacrifices of that latter type, comprising animal flesh, there were again broadly three types. The first, known as burnt offerings, where the entire animal was burnt on the altar. Then there were offerings for sin, in which there were elaborate blood rituals. And finally, there were so-called fellowship offerings, being offerings in which the offerer himself received back part of it to eat with his family, and so as it were, sharing with God and with God's officiating priests. As with using the rituals of any people group to identify its core values, I suggest that through this God-given system of sacrifices, we can easily perceive what the core values God wanted to demonstrate among his people were. And these values were those of complete dedication to their God, as mirrored in the burnt offerings where the entire animal was offered, as well as a holy sensitivity to sin, obviously rubbed in by the repetition of the sin offerings that was required of them, and finally a sense of joyful communion with their God, as readily displayed in the fellowship-type offerings in which the offerer shared. Fifteen hundred years later, when Christ came, he made it very clear on God's behalf that these core values had not materialised, or at least not been sustained, to anything like the desired degree. Christ's uncompromising message to the Jewish people, even as they rejected him, was that their status as a holy nation for God their status as his kingdom on earth was going to be removed from the nation of Israel. That is, the physical nation of Israel would no longer be identified with the spiritual or holy nation of God. In Matthew 21 and verse 43, Jesus stated very boldly that God was in process then of identifying another people as his holy nation, one which would produce the fruits God desires. It seems reasonable to draw the conclusion that among those fruits that God wanted to see would be dedication, holiness and joyful communion with himself. It was for these things God looked among the followers of his son, described in the Bible book of Acts as being found in the local churches that the Lord's apostles began establishing after his return to heaven. Even if there's an identity crisis among the English or the Americans, as we referenced before in secular terms, there really ought never to be a national identity crisis in New Testament churches of God. Biblically, it's clear that these numerous local churches were united in the early days into one coherent and cohesive community that could rightly be viewed as a holy nation. From earliest times, they strove for a distinct existence, remaining quite separate from variant religious views, such as Judaism and later Gnosticism. But what or who is God's holy nation today? We must turn to the golden rule of Bible interpretation to guide us. No Bible verse or phrase is at liberty to be defined today in any way that denies its original intention, as understood back then. The best way to explain any Bible label, such as holy nation, is by explaining what it originally meant in its true Bible context. And that's what we've tried to do. It's not so much about us today self-identifying as evangelical or brethren type or anything else. 
It's about replicating exactly what it meant to be a Christian 2,000 years ago and to do it by building on the very same apostolic basis for the Christian faith. Every week I remind you that the transcripts of all the talks in this series are available together in book form, which has the title A Crisis of Identity. If you'd like a copy, then just write in. We'd also be pleased to hear any comments or questions you might have. But I'll be giving you the contact details in a moment, and the talk you've heard today is also available to download via the internet in audio or text format. However, to obtain the book, simply ask for a crisis of identity, and you can do this by email or by post, and here's our address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wotton Bassett, Swindon, SN48DY, UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. Time's almost up, but thanks again for the pleasure of your company. It's been great to have you with us. And I hope you'll join us next time when Brian will be looking into the Bible again to see ourselves as a prized possession. I hope you'll join us. Until then, it's very best wishes from our Bible teacher Brian, studio technician David, our singers and me, John. So cheerio and may God richly bless you. Turn to dawning and the dawning to dawning.